It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The Olympics are underway today. Da, 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 da. The opening ceremonies in Tokyo this morning. And uh, I don't know, my reaction is just I'm not that excited about it. We will talk about that more later in the podcast. I mean, these Olympic Games have been so totally snake bit since last year, uh, since it's Friday. This is also my weekly reminder to you that Media Buzz airs on Fox Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. Glenn Greenwald will be among our guests. And I want to talk a little bit, you know, there's going to be a lot of COVID on this podcast today because I believe it is the defining health challenge of our time, the defining political question of our time, and the defining media question of our time right now because of the Delta surge and the debate over vaccination and so forth. So since uh, we're talking a little bit about sports, the National Football League now telling its teams, this is a fascinating debate that if any team has a COVID-19 outbreak among unvaccinated players, and that particular game can't be rescheduled, the team will forfeit the game and take a loss. I mean, this sounds totally unprecedented to me in professional sports. And so, you know, if you are the Buccaneers or the Patriots or the Jets or the Giants or the Rams, and you're, you have one of those outbreaks, you get a big fat L, the loss column. It kind of sounds unfair, except I have to counter by saying this. I, on what planet are there not 100% vaccination rates in a major multi-billion dollar business like the National Football League? Oh, by the way, uh, if that game is canceled, uh, obviously Roger Goodell, the commissioner, trying to send a strong message yesterday, uh, the players on both teams won't receive their weekly salary. And the club that has the outbreak will be responsible for any financial losses incurred by the opposing team. So the, the, Goodell is really trying to make it unattractive. First of all, if I'm playing on um, the Washington football team and we're supposed to play the Miami Dolphins, and the Dolphins have an outbreak among the unvaccinated, I don't get paid when my team and myself had nothing to do with it. That also seems unfair. Um, 75% of NFL players are in the process of getting vaccinated, according to this memo. Uh, Excuse me. I understand there's this great and often passionate debate about vaccine passports and should stores or shopping malls or cruise ships or airlines or whatever be able to say, hey, you want to partake of our services, you want to walk in our doors, you have to prove that you are vaccinated. There's a lot of debate about that. But in in the NFL, you know, it's not exactly a no-contact sport. So if you're playing and you, for whatever reason, don't believe in the vaccination, but you're tackling people who are vaccinated, I, I, I don't know. It just seems to me that it's not an unreasonable thing for the league to pressure players, and this obviously is a form of advanced pressure, into getting these shots. Now, there was a lot of publicity about DeAndre Hopkins. He's with the Arizona Cardinals because he tweeted, and he since deleted this, never thought I would say this, but being in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. And then after the deletion, he tweeted, freedom, question mark, But then later, 
I guess he had a change of heart or he realized he was putting his career at risk. So he tweeted again, I have nine more years left in me. And somebody on television said, yeah, the guy's got like a $22 million contract. And if he suddenly opts out or can't play because he's not vaccinated, you know, he can kiss that money goodbye. That would be a pretty persuasive argument. Look, I understand some people just may feel like the risks are too great or have personal reasons for not wanting to get vaccinated. I don't feel like everybody in America should be forced to be vaccinated. But it does seem fair to me. For a private employer, especially in a business where, you know, players routinely make millions of dollars to say, hey, you want this compensation and the endorsements and you want to be on TV and all of that? Well, you got to meet minimum requirements. And here's one of them. You have to assure us you're not going to spread COVID-19. So go get vaccinated. So that leads me into story number one. And, you know, anybody who's been listening to the podcast knows I've been leading off with the numbers and it was 20,000 new cases a day, and then 25, and then 30, and then 40. Yesterday, more than 45,000 new cases of the coronavirus. And, you know, every study shows it's largely driven. It's like 97% plus among those who have not been vaccinated. So the best thing I've read on this lately comes from David French, conservative writer for The Dispatch. Uh, this is something that is sent out to subscribers. And it made me look at it in a different way, because obviously there is this growing and intense debate about can society persuade, pressure, induce, incentivize more people to get this vaccine. And if you take a step back, I mean, we've tried just about everything. The free beer, the free weed, the free donuts, the free baseball tickets, the lottery tickets and all that. So here's what French says. He starts out by talking about, you know, everyone's blaming Facebook, but, you know, uh, and, it's, and it's bias. Spend nine seconds on right-wing media, says French. You'll see angry story after angry story about social media censorship. The rule is not anything goes. Okay. Once the response to COVID became politicized, he says, with Republicans underestimating the risks of COVID and Democrats overestimating them, the die was cast. The instant that the response to COVID became part of the culture war, every single preventative measure was going to be contentious, including the vaccine. And let me just take a step, second here to say, it's miraculous that we have these life-saving vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, uh, and that we got them so quickly. Many, many countries around the world are just literally dying for these vaccines. And yet we have more than enough supply in America and the problem is we can't get enough people to take it. Just about half the country is fully vaccinated. And when you think about it, you know, why should this be so hard? And this is the question that French, and I'm going to get to other authors in a minute, are trying to address. So uh, French says, misinformation isn't necessarily the cause of vaccine hesitancy as much as it is the rationalization for vaccine hesitancy. Even in communities where the COVID culture war isn't an explanation for reluctance, for example, he says, uh, minority communities that may be hesitant. The true task isn't so much overcoming misinformation as overcoming a pre-existing posture of distrust 
that the misinformation latches onto. In other words, it's not that people are hearing the wrong stuff. You know, there were some leading Republicans who were saying this. There were some leading media conservatives who were saying this. All that seems to be changing, if you haven't noticed, or changing to some degree, or maybe it's just getting more attention. I'll get to that in moments, too. Um, so uh, David French says, as long as, the, as long as the culture war lasts, dealing with misinformation is like playing a form of psychological whack-a-mole. Debunk one objection and another pops up until the objections aren't factual at all, but exposed as rooted in something else entirely. And by the way, the coverage of the misinformation, you know, you, you hear things that you didn't even know. Oh, uh, the vaccines are linked to uh, infertility. Well, that's not true. But then you cover it and you want to cover it because you want to expose it as false. And then more people hear about it. Anyway, let's be honest, says David French. Americans have been deluged with positive information regarding the vaccine, with few exceptions. Every single significant elite entity of American persuasion has been directed at the American public. Social media companies have this comprehensive campaign. He says he can't log on to Facebook. This is true without the site offering me vaccine resources. But I wonder if the top-down persuasion efforts has reached the limits of its effectiveness. All the low-hanging fruit has been plucked. Now we're at the phase of the fight where it's person by person, family by family. In fact, he says, the very, the very people who decry misinformation have often fallen for misinformation themselves. Longtime proponents of outdoor masking, for example, are not the best folks to scream science in the faces of the vaccine reluctant. And a war on misinformation is dangerous for free speech. And I have to admit that that's true. Turning to the government... Everybody trusts the government, right? Turning to the government to define misinformation is especially dangerous. It only takes a grade school knowledge of American history to know that government officials have been a source of intentional misinformation repeatedly through American history. And you can probably come up with all the examples yourself. So, plus, you know, when you're trying to rule things out on social media or combat, quote, misinformation... You know, scientific assessments can be wrong. Remember the consensus? Remember, you got banned from Facebook for saying this, that the Wuhan lab leak theory was misinformation. Uh, it was just, it was an effort to rule it out of bounds. Well, now it's not ruled out of bounds. It's a theory. A lot of people think there's substance to it. There's been some good reporting on it. Facebook now allows it. Facebook didn't used to allow it. So French doesn't actually have a total solution, but he says we have to engage more at the personal level. Don't delegate your community self to the words and actions of government or corporations or media power. Deep distrust is best dispelled personally through the relationships, words, and actions. In other words, it falls to all of us who have gotten vaccinated, who believe in vaccination, who feel that whatever tiny risk vaccination might hold uh, is outweighed by the enormous benefits uh, to people getting these vaccines, that that's the way to do it. But that's, of course, easier said than done. But I mean, I just was so struck by the notion that every power center in American society, media, corporations, government, social media, they're all trying to convince people to get vaccinated, and it's not working among this hardcore that happens to be tens of millions of people. Okay, let's go to number two, Max Boot, conservative columnist for The Washington Post. He's had it. He doesn't want any more of the voluntary stuff. And this, I'm sure, is going to be very controversial. It's time to get serious about coronavirus vaccinations, stop pleading, and start mandating. 
Now, I'm still developing my opinion on this, but let me give you the boot case. For six months, President Biden, joined by every public health authority in the land, has been begging Americans to get vaccinated. The pretty please approach isn't working. This is a preventable tragedy. And he's right, 99%, over 99% of COVID-19 deaths in June were among the unvaccinated. It is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yet even as evidence grows that vaccines are safe and effective, resistance to them is also growing. Recent post-ABC News poll found that 29% of Americans said they were unlikely to get vaccinated, up from 24% three months earlier. Only 59% of adults are fully vaccinated. If you limit it to adults, um, we've reached almost 60, but not the 70 that was Joe Biden's goal. Now, Boot goes on to say this vaccine hesitancy among many different sectors of the population, including reckless youths, granola liberals who believe in alternative medicines, and African-Americans who distrust the healthcare system with some justification. Some are still persuadable, but many are not. 86% in this poll of Democrats have gotten at least one shot, compared with 45% of Republicans. Right-wingers are literally dying to own the libs. In the process, they're ensuring that the deadly variants will continue to circulate. By the way, I'm reading that the Delta variant is not necessarily more powerful than the original COVID-19, if you get it, but that it's 10 times more transmissible, 10 times more contagious. And that now, that's more than 80% of the virus new cases in America. All right, back to the Max Boot column. And then Boot, you know, sort of takes off the gloves. This is madness, he says. Stop making reasonable appeals to those who will not listen to reason. Uh, there was an economist YouGov poll that I mentioned this yesterday. A majority of those who refuse to get vaccinated say vaccines are being used by the government to implant microchips. How do you have a rational conversation with people who believe that? It's a waste of time. Start mandating that anyone who wants to travel on an airplane, train, or bus, attend a concert or a movie, eat at a restaurant, shop at a store, work in an office, or visit any other indoor space, show proof of vaccination or a negative coronavirus test. Uh, in many schools, you have to, in particularly private schools, you got to take a test every week. And the school may provide that, and they're trying to obviously keep those schools safe. In the U.S., the authority of state governments to mandate vaccinations is clear. In fact, I didn't know this. It goes back to a 1905 Supreme Court case that upheld a Massachusetts law requiring vaccinations for smallpox. And this is what I often come down to when I think about these mandates. And now schools are different because kids, you know, can't provide informed consent and it's up to their parents. But, you know, how routine is it? If you want to enroll your kid in a public school kindergarten or first grade, you've got to get a letter or a card or something from a doctor that says they had the measles vaccine, they had the smallpox vaccine, or they had the, the mumps vaccine, or the chickenpox vaccine. Um, and otherwise, they can't go to school. And yet, there's this great political hue and cry that we don't require adults to show they've been vaccinated or had COVID or, you know, tested negative in order to do a whole bunch of things that could put other people at risk. Okay, Kay Ivey, she is the Republican governor of Alabama. She's a conservative Republican. She said this uh, to a local station yesterday. 
The new cases of COVID are because of unvaccinated folks. Almost 100% of the new hospitalizations are with unvaccinated folks. And the deaths are certainly occurring with the unvaccinated folks. These folks are choosing a horrible lifestyle of self-inflicted pain. And Governor Ivey went on to say, folks are supposed to have common sense. It's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the vaccinated folks. Now, when a conservative Republican governor is saying this, by the way, Ron DeSantis in Florida, a conservative governor, as you will find in the United States of America, he came out uh, the other day and said, we've got to get more people vaccinated. Florida is a place where the virus is surging. And you look at these maps and you see, you know, more of a surge in the states, many of them red states, many of them in the south, some in the upper Midwest, that have the lowest vaccination rates. The fewest cases are in the Northeast and the West Coast, which have the highest vaccination rates. And here's a little sidebar for you uh, from the New York Times about tech companies and what the pandemic has done to them. So Jeff Bezos, some time ago, I didn't remember this, uh, said, you know, Amazon's going to spend $4 billion on pandemic-related stuff. We don't even want to make a profit this year. Well, the profits are in. Uh, unlike Bezos's prediction, uh, Amazon earned an operating profit of $5.8 billion. And that's a record for Amazon. By the way, the combined stock market valuation of Apple, Alphabet, which owns Google, uh, NVIDIA, Tesla, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook, increased by 70% to more than $10 trillion, roughly the size of the whole U.S. stock market back in 2002. And this is where some interesting questions came up. Silicon Valley made the tools that allowed Americans and the American economy to survive the pandemic. People got their jigsaw puzzles, air purifiers, and digital thermometers, thermometers delivered by Amazon. The consumer, consumer economy swerved from local to national. Tech is triumphant in a way that even its most evangelical leaders could not have predicted. No single industry has ever had such power over American life, dominating how we communicate, shop, learn about the world, and seek distraction and joy. What will Silicon Valley do with this power? Who, if anyone, might restrain tech, and how much support will they have? Those are good questions for another day. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three. Back to the Tokyo Olympics. Washington Post, I think, perfectly captures the tone of the situation with this story, talking about how the stadiums and the arenas are empty because they're not allowing any fans. Conversations are through masks and plexiglass partitions. Um, visitors must spin into plastic tubes at regular intervals. Their movements are tracked by smartphone apps. No one is smiling. This is a report out of Tokyo. These are the sensory deprivation Olympics. No fans, no natural crowd noise, no touching. The people who have the Tokyo 2020 credentials are kept separate from a resentful Japanese public uh, because in Japan, there's a surge in the coronavirus. So they're worried about, you know, average people getting it. Everywhere, someone trails behind visitors to sanitize anything that gets touched. The Japanese people don't want this. In polls, a clear majority of the public remains opposed to these games which, according to the uh, editorial in Asahi Shimbun, was pushed through by four so the IOC could earn its billions from television rights. I'm not sure that's way off base because t t t Japan is going to take a bath on this. The 2020 Tokyo Games may have been born as the Recovery Olympics, 
But now, to, you know, the idea was to show the world that Japan bounced back from an earthquake, from a tsunami, from a nuclear meltdown back in 2011. But now that some 15,000 athletes and 70,000 officials and media folks are there, um, the games are something else entirely. These are the joyless Olympics made to be endured and survived instead of enjoyed and celebrated. It cost Tokyo more than 15 billion dollars and all the news been bad. I mentioned the director of the opening ceremonies got fired yesterday for old Holocaust jokes. Um, meanwhile, Japanese companies led by Toyota, which is a major sponsor, are pulling their commercials off of television broadcasts because they don't want the negative publicity. Um, Four million deaths worldwide, just to remind you. It colors every aspect of the game. And this is one, I'll read one more paragraph because it really struck me. Imagine being an athlete here, having trained most of your life for this moment, only to be poked and prodded, made to feel as if your presence isn't wanted, barred from bringing family members along, and asked to summon Olympic perfor Olympian performances in empty stadiums devoid of atmosphere or electricity. Here's U.S. softball player. Softball is back after about a dozen years. Uh, Michelle Moultrie, there are circumstances where when you just want to cry or something, but I think we have to adapt to whatever measures are put in place. And by the way, when the people who win the gold or the silver or the bronze, the medal ceremonies will be contactless. The athletes, the winning athletes, will have to put the medals around their own necks. That just kind of sums it up. All right, number four, you may remember uh, the case of a Washington Post reporter whose name is Felicia Sanmez. I talked about this some months ago because she had been barred by her newspaper from covering cases that involve sexual misconduct, whether it was the Harvey Weinstein story, uh, whether it was other stories, Brett Kavanaugh, confirmation hearings, for example. And the reason is, it had to do a little bit with what she tweeted, but basically she had gone public as saying that she was a survivor of sexual assault. It was a huge uproar, a lot of people at the paper supported her, and the post reversed itself, which I thought was smart, and the ban was lifted. Well, yesterday, Felicia Sanmez fired a lawsuit against her own newspaper and former editor Marty Barron and a bunch of current editors. And this is, you know, needless to say, an extraordinary thing for a current reporter to do. She's a national politics reporter, and the suit recounts how once the Me Too movement became a major story, there was a bunch of stories that she wasn't allowed to cover. It was earlier this year that the ban was lifted, but Sanmez says in this suit that she already has suffered severe damage. In the lawsuit, she says she has suffered, and I'm quoting here, economic loss, humiliation, embarrassment, mental and emotional distress, and the deprivation of her rights to equal employment opportunities. At various times, it says she became severely depressed, developed intense anxiety, and received treatment from therapists and psychiatrists who she continues to see today. She's on antidepressant medication. She also experienced physical pain, including severe pain in her jaw from grinding her teeth at night. She eventually developed some kind of um, joint disorder and had to have two oral surgery procedures. So um, I'm sympathetic to this. I don't think she ever should have been banned. Because to say that somebody, you know, it's one thing if your coverage is considered to be biased or too sympathetic to one side, or you tweet things that are inappropriate for a reporter to tweet. 
But just because you have, she says she's a victim of sexual assault, uh, there's some argument about whether that was consensual or not, I don't know the details of that case. But for the paper to bar her from, in effect, doing part of her job, that is concerning, it is humiliating, it is embarrassing, and it's frustrating. I don't know about how much money she potentially could win in this lawsuit. The Washington Post had no comment, even in the story that appears in the Post today, about the lawsuit by one of its own reporters. Um, I do think this was a mistake. I don't know legally whether she has a great case here or not. Um, But obviously, it would discourage people from coming forward about you know, discourage particularly women from coming forward about sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape, and all of that if they feel like they would be penalized in their own job. Now, journalism is a special kind of profession and requires standards, at least aspiring to meet standards of objectivity that you don't have if you're working in a widget factory or in a hospital, you name it. Um, so we'll see where that lawsuit goes. And finally, number five, get a little politics in here. Politico has a piece about if Donald Trump runs for president in 2024, I'm still not sure that's going to happen. I think he wants to keep alive the possibility that it will happen because it gives him greater cloud, greater visibility, greater fundraising ability, more of an impact on the midterms. Well, basically, you kind of know this instinctively, but Politico has made it, I don't know, semi-official. Uh, that Mike Pence will not be his running mate. I mean, for one thing, Trump would want a different look, obviously, uh, given the things that Trump continues to say in interviews, that Pence was not courageous and he didn't perform his constitutional responsibility to overturn the Electoral College results and send the whole thing back to the states. Actually, the reality is that Mike Pence, after having been incredibly loyal to a guy who, I, you know, let's just say he's hard to work for, for four years, did his duty on January 6th of this year. He does not have the power to set, to overturn the Electoral College results. This was something that Donald Trump cooked up, but nevertheless, there was, you know, even on January 6th of this year, when rioters and others were storming the Capitol, when some people were shouting, hang Mike Pence, Trump was tweeting negatively about his vice president and didn't call him immediately to see how he was. I'm just reminded every time I talk about that that the whole thing could have turned out to be far worse. Anyway, back to the handicapping. Uh, One Trump advisor talked about the people who are positioning themselves to run for president on the Republican side. You can't wait to run for president, but those doing it now look like they're dancing on the grave and the political body's still warm. Uh, Trump is extremely unlikely, says Politico, to run again with Mike Pence as his number two advisor say. So they want this out there. Um, some Trump aides have also written off Pence's political future, at least at the presidential level, privately arguing he's failed to capture anything close to the same kind of enthusiasm as Trump. Well, he's not the same political personality as Trump. But, you know, I've talked about this before. On the one hand, people who love Trump probably share his anger at his former vice president. People who don't love Trump or Republicans who simply want to move on from the Trump era think, well, Pence is not the guy because he has the Trump baggage. He was there for four years defending everything that Trump did. Um, So who would run um, with Trump if indeed Trump runs again? Oh, here is an advisor, by the way, saying 
Pence's chances of being picked are zero. Uh, Bob Vanderplatz, big political force in Iowa, president of the Family Leader Influential Social Group, says, it's been there, done that for both of them. I know they need a French, fresh start if Trump runs again. Uh, Vanderplatz had an interview. Is it Nikki Haley? Is it a Tim Scott? Is it Christy Nome? You could see all of them making a big play for VP. You could also see Ron DeSantis. I mean, I think there's no much question that the Florida governor would like to be president of the United States, but he can't run against Trump, who's his big benefactor, who basically helped him win the governorship in Florida a couple of years ago. But, you know, would he accept the number two slot as a way of getting out of Florida and then positioning himself for four years later? Because if they win, Trump would be 82, uh, just as Biden will be 82, by the way, at the end of his term. And if they lose, you know, often the guy who runs number two on the ticket um, is presumed, depending on how the campaign turns out or anything, but even if it's a respectable loss, is presumed to be the front runner for the presidential nomination the next time around. Uh, obviously, we have a lot more serious problems in this country right now than worrying about 2024, but I try to keep you appraised of all the politics uh, so you will be in the know, as they say. Uh, remember, weekend coming up. Hope you have a really good one. Media Buzz Sunday morning. If you have a chance to see it, we'll put the segments online. You can subscribe here. Apple iTunes, uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or on your Amazon device. See you on Monday with more Buzz Media. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.